0: C word, the big C. That's the topic of this episode. Of course, I'm referring to confidence. (laughs) Provocative? Well, when you consider how many of us wish we had more of it, yes, maybe it is. I'm Ellie Hill, and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of life. Mel Schilling is someone who has researched and worked in the field of confidence across her 20 year career. You might know her as the relationship expert on Married at First Sight in both the Australian and the UK versions, or through her multiple media and TV appearances over the last five years. She is a specialist in human behaviour and performance, and she's built a career as a therapist, business consultant, and leadership coach for high-performing people. This episode got me thinking and feeling deeply, and I think it will for you as well. We navigate the shitstorm of hard things and the setbacks. We talk about the continuum of confidence, making sure you don't have too much, but also making sure you have enough. And Mel provides really practical, really accessible tools to get out of your own way. After an hour, you will feel more confident, I promise you. So get ready to dive into what holds you back, the tools of confidence and the pure effervescence of the beautiful Mel Schilling. Thank you.
1: Mel it's such a delight to be
0: connecting with you.
1: Oh thanks Ellie. I'm delighted to be here let's have a good chat.
0: Absolutely ready to have a chat you and I yeah. we connected a couple of years ago pre-pandemic I feel like mm-hmm. everything is now measured pre-pandemic just yeah. didn't quite get into a studio um, yes. but it is great to be able to connect with you now something you've done between then and now is written a book Call yeah, the C word. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I, I do remember our first conversation so clearly. I was in Bali. I was living in Bali at the time and I can remember exactly where I was when I was sitting down having my conversation with you. Gosh, a lot has changed since then.
0: The world has changed. Yes,
1: the pandemic and the more. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. How did, mm. uh, how did the pandemic impact you and your work?
1: Well, I have to say, it it didn't it it didn't it didn't affect me negatively. I've got to say, and I oh, I can't you can see I'm tripping on the words as I'm saying it because I kind of feel guilty as I say mm. it. Um, I I feel like I was one of the the fortunate people who the the events of the pandemic the pandemic actually worked for me in a number of ways. Um, well, firstly, the strange thing, and this feels very weird to say, the strange thing is that television and particularly reality television is considered an essential service. <laughs> I mean, go figure.
0: <laughs> yeah. It doesn't that just uh, describe what's important to all of
1: uh-huh. us. <laughs> uh-huh. You could be a nurse or you could be on reality TV, take your pick. You're still essential. <laughs> so that, that's strange. That, that felt very mm. weird as it was happening, realizing that, you know, essential service workers, um, were allowed to go to work and everybody else obviously had to stay home, particularly in Melbourne where I was living at the time, um, yet I was allowed to go into a studio or sometimes film from home, you know, and have all of the access to all of the resources that I needed, you know, to, to do that work. Um, but the other really, I guess, the real upside for me was having that time because, yes, you know, like a lot of people who work in you know in our in our space overnight almost a whole bunch of projects just dried up particularly all of my speaking engagements boom gone all the events were off so i found myself with a lot of time as we all did and I've had a lot of projects on the back burner for, for many years. And I'm one of those creative thinkers that gets very distracted by shiny things. <laughs> and I've got a lot of half baked ideas. <laughs> I've got. Oh, I know yep. that feeling. <laughs> uh-huh. You can relate. You're like a magpie too, chasing mm-hmm. the shiny things. Yeah, yep. let's do that. Let's uh-huh. do that. Uh huh. That's me too. So the pandemic for me, or at least lockdown for me, was such a great opportunity to pull some of those ideas off the back burner and onto the front and to go okay I've got a little bit of time now I might just dive into these and so I got my whiteboard out and just started going crazy with ideas and you know looking at okay if I'm not doing x what am I doing what what can I fill this you know this creative void with so one of the things that I pulled off the back burner was a, a TV series that I had been developing for a little while, and went deep on that. I, I joined up with a an, another a indie production company, and we went into development and developed this this project out to um, the point where it's it, it was ready for pitching and sale to to TV networks and. That's, we're still having conversations with, with TV networks all over the world about that now, because we actually got it to the point where it's ready to go. So that's exciting. That's watch this space on that one. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. the other project was was the book. I knew that I had, well, I think I have a few books in me. Actually, this was the first one because I, I am very passionate about confidence. It For me, it it differentiates people in not just the social world, but also in the professional world and in the world of achievement. You know, I often think that when we look at people at the top of their game, they're not always the most talented or the most skilled or the most educated. They're often the people who have, you know, as many people say, they've got balls, you know. They're people who are actually prepared to stretch keep their going. comfort zone. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and mm. to take those knocks, to have those failures and to reframe them as just feedback and to go okay that's great information I know I can't do that let's try a different track boom I'm going in this way. So confidence is something that is very interesting to me and it's also I see an incredible halo effect with people who are confident. We make these assumptions that because they present in a let's say a really articulate way or there's someone who's really skilled at walking into a room and having charisma and owning that space. We make all these assumptions about them that are not always true. Um, You know, take Donald Trump, for example, Um, you know, because he is someone who is a... A a strong speaker who speaks with such conviction, um, not that I agree with even one of his convictions, but, (laughs) but that's beside the point. He speaks with conviction. So he had, you know, the majority of America eating out of his hand because they made these assumptions that because he's someone who speaks clearly and makes strong opinions very clearly understood by the masses, they made assumptions that he would be a good leader. And as we now know, he is not. So, I mean, that's a very extreme example, but, you know, it makes us think about, you know, people perhaps we've worked with or we've been in relationships with and, you know, people who present as a confident person, they seem to get an unfair advantage. So I thought, I want more people to have that. I want more people to get that unfair advantage. Good people not Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> it's uh it's it's so interesting that kind of mix of conviction and confidence. The word that's coming up for me is um, it's provocative in some ways because I think we there is and I've heard people say I just need to have more confidence like there's a shop I could go to and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know get it by the kilo or yeah. you know get it by get it by bulk. How do you define or Like, how do we understand what confidence is?
1: Yeah. Well, first I'd probably start by talking about what it is not. Um, And everything in that Trump example is an example of what it is not. So I think there are a lot of myths about confidence, you know, often. uh, And I think this often feeds into particularly women's reticence to want to put themselves forward and be seen as confident because of labelling you know, particularly in the workplace, if, if women do behave in an assertive way, and for me assertiveness is confidence in action, um, they can be at risk of being labelled aggressive or bossy or bitchy. Um, you know, what they're describing there is not confidence, that is overconfidence or sometimes even narcissism, you know. And at the other end of the continuum, of course, is, is underconfidence. So I think it's important that people understand that confidence needs to be... I think of the continuum between one and 10, and I like confidence to sit between about five and eight. So anything over that, it really, it can be at the risk of your relationships. You can be, you can start self-sabotaging and overestimating your capability. And you can really start to lack self-awareness, I find up up there. And that's where that, that sort of self-centered narcissistic behavior starts to creep in. And of course, below that, then you're not gonna be achieving much. So the way I kind of talk about creating confidence, you know, as you said, if you could go to a shop and just buy it in bulk, this this would be how you'd do it. You'd start by mastering fear. And it seems a little bit funny to talk about fear when we're talking about confidence. But for me, one can't exist without the other. You can't actually achieve confidence without that psychological tension that exists with managing fear. Because fear is everywhere. It's normal. It's natural. It's inbuilt, as we know. And it's there for for bloody good reasons. You know, I think I think it's really important that as humans, we can be really in touch with our fear responses and know what they are and when they're coming. You know, for example, if you're someone who when fear starts to creep in, maybe you start to notice a little bit of a sweaty palm or maybe your breathing gets a bit shallow. Maybe Maybe it's a dry throat for you. Whatever it is, Get in touch with that stuff so that you can be super aware of those early warning signs when fear or anxiety is starting to to happen for you. And then, you know, I talk a lot in the book about how you can sort of walk alongside fear. You know, this is not about overcoming fear. I don't think that's a thing. You know, you hear all this trope on Instagram, everything you want is on the other side of fear, you know, all this stuff as if you can just make fear disappear, but you can't. Mm. And we have automatic negative self-talk. It's inbuilt. It is there to protect us and to scan our environment for, for threat. So I think just getting a level of acceptance that some of that stuff is is there. It's It's not going anywhere. So we need to be smart about the way we respond to it. Not react, but respond in a thoughtful, mindful way. So that's a starting point, being aware of that. And once you've got a good handle on fear, I think you can then start to step into courage. Um, For me, what I've learned through doing my research for this book is that courage is something that emerges when what you want is bigger than what you fear. And I think there's a real delicate balance in there that that people can sort of play with. But I think it's really helpful to think about, okay, here's the bucket over here on this side of all the things I'm scared of. But on the other side, here are the bigger things that I want in life. Here's my higher purpose, if you like, or my vision for my future. And, of course, this taps into values and, you know, all the things that are so important to you. Um, I mean, an, an example for me of that type of courage for my my own life was when I went through IVF, you know, for me, I, I got very much in touch with what I wanted, what we wanted. The higher purpose here was to become parents, you know, and we were, you know, getting close to 42. I was getting close to 42 and I'd had a year of trying and miscarriages and, you know, there was a lot of fear. I had great fear of loss. I didn't want to have another pregnancy and, and have to go through another miscarriage. Um, the fear of putting all these strange chemicals in my body and, you know, there was so much fear tied up with all of the unknowns that come with it and the fear of, you know, what if I constantly have the letdowns again? What if I bring more grief and loss into my family? But ultimately that that desire to be a mum was so much bigger Than the fear, it absolutely ate the fear for breakfast and it made it really clear for me that the only way I can get into that courage space is by holding that thing that I want really close and keeping it top of mind because that's the way to overshadow the fears.
0: Were there things that were practical that helped you keep that front of mind? Um, And thank you for sharing because I think that the fear of going through IVF miscarriages, it's a visceral fear. Mm. It's a, it's one we feel physiologically. Uh, So whilst we'll often think of fear as kind of the the head game, there's like, I almost feel my body Mm. (laughs) feeling that physiologically as well. Um, And keeping the vision, the goal um, front of mind is great on the mornings we feel good when we've had a good sleep (laughs) Um, and hard when that fear kind of strikes our body. Practically, what helps you to keep that front of mind?
1: Yeah, really good question. I'm, I'm a big fan of reminders you know, some people call them affirmations or mantras, you know, I I, I like to think of them as reminders. Um, And this little gadget here, the phone or or your laptop, I think is a great tool for reminders. So let's say, you know, it it is a a goal of becoming a parent that's on your mind, you know, have the the wallpaper on on your phone—a picture of you with a with your niece or nephew, or of a, of a child, or of just something that represents that goal that you're working towards. Set little questions. I, I love. I often talk to my clients about setting little questions as reminders in your calendar to pop up and just ask yourself, "What story am I telling myself at the moment?" So just to make sure you're staying on top of that internal monologue, because we all know that the the fear thoughts creep in, you know, if you are going through IVF, it's very natural to start, you know, getting into that worry mode about what could go wrong. But then if you can have that reminder to sort of stop those thoughts, challenge them, flip them over and go, what could go right? How would I feel if I was holding that baby in my arms? So I think having really practical thought stoppers like those in in your day is really, really helpful. I love Mm -hmm. that
0: practical um, pull you out of your own head, your own thinking, and just to to change the cycle um, there as well. And, you know, that's really useful in dealing with any hurdles, uh, setbacks. In that example, I know there'd be plenty of people listening that might have been through IVF and it's not been successful um and whilst this is a particular example we're talking about but it can be examples of other areas Mm. where people build themselves up build up a level of confidence but it doesn't go the way we had planned um or ultimately there is an outcome where we have to make the call to go how do I let go of that vision or expand that vision or change that vision? Mm. What would be your recommendations for dealing with the kind of ultimate setbacks that might come our way?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the first step is self-compassion, you know, because it, it happens, you know, it is part of life. Things go wrong. And, you know, sometimes we can put everything we have into working toward a goal and for whatever reasons, maybe it's beyond our control, it doesn't work. So I think it's so important to be kind to yourself when that happens, you know, and and allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling. Maybe there is a time for a bit of wallowing in it. That's okay. That's human. Bit of self-pity, never hurt anyone (laughs) as long as it doesn't go on for too long you know, so allowing that and allowing yourself to have that period of time for for feeling the feelings, the regret, mourning, what could have been, because it's so important, you know, that you allow yourself to, to process that stuff. And once you've done that, I think another really good step is to get back in touch with the things that bring you joy. And that may be related to that goal or it might not. You know, my my sister has recently been through an example of this in her career. She got to the very top of her career and she was a a paramedic and spent years doing postgraduate study, extra work, making sacrifices in her family to get to the top of her career. And she got there and didn't like it. It wasn't what she thought. She literally climbed the mountain, got to the top, didn't like the view. So she found herself, you know, in this kind of situation, and actually, her her whole experience um, really inspired a a chapter in the book because I the question you've asked is a really common one. You know, how do you rebuild confidence after it's been battered out of you? Because that's part of life too. So that self-compassion is definitely the first step. The next one is to get back in touch with what brings you joy. My sister, as a kid, rode horses. And that was her thing. She was into horses. I was into dancing and boys. (laughs) She loved her horses. And, you know, she's now got, you know, three teenage children and, you know, a busy life. But she's gone and got another horse. And so now at, you know, almost 50, she started horse riding again. And that is bringing her immense joy and, you know, helping her just get back in touch with who she is as a person without, you know, that career goal. So that's something I've, you know, learnt a lot from, um, and I, I can see how that can extrapolate across all different situations in life. You know, if you can take, have take experience the loss, take those first two steps, the the self compassion, and then the reconnecting with something that brings you joy. For me, I see that as allowing you to get to that almost ground zero again so you can start to build confidence. Those things in and of themselves don't build confidence, but they enable you to get back in touch with, you know, your um, you-ness in order to start. So then you can start to, you know, re-examining fear. What are these new fears that are coming up now that everything's shifted, everything's changed, and, and examining that, understanding that, accepting that then you can start to go, okay, setting new goals, a new path. How can I start to slowly, carefully and self-lovingly expand my comfort zone again? So so for me, it is, and I use that word expand very intentionally. I I don't believe in jumping outside the comfort zone. I, I don't think that serves us. It only puts us into anxiety and, you know, we all know we're not at our best when we're anxious. But if we can start to gradually expand that comfort zone and bring things that are growth promoting into our comfort zone, then we're going to be in a much stronger position to feel safe in order to grow.
0: I think that's such a critical point because, again, there can be narratives or stories or memes or things out there around burn the bridges. Uh Yeah, just do it. Particularly in (laughs) times, just do it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's the thing you've always, you know, quit your job and you'll be fine. Uh Yeah, mortgages are also going up and, you know, Mm -hmm. there is this – you know, I think that chance to be able to expand, to to see and see that stretch and, and move beyond, uh, but understand that that is here. I mean, the other one, I'm interested in your take on this one too, where I've heard plenty of people going, if it's not a hell yeah, then it's a no. So, like, well, sometimes I know the things that have stretched me enough were the ones that I did have a little bit of anxiety right. about. I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah. But there was, there, I do get that intuition of going, this feels okay, but it doesn't feel like a hell yeah.
1: <laughs> I agree. Look, I think all of those really simplistic binary ways of looking at life are great for a meme because, you know, they make a great little soundbite or, or, you know, a little image, but I, I I, think human nature is much more nuanced than that. And, and I agree with you, Ellie. I think, you know, some of the most... Um, monumental events in my life have have been, I've been sitting on the fence completely and completely confused about what to do. And that's, that's part of, you know, the human condition. So I think one of the great skills that we can learn is how to sit with that kind of free floating anxiety that comes with that uncertainty and still make a decision not to not be immobilized by it.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your own confidence and your shift in a career. so um, with a background in psychology uh, to make that leap or that I've read the com- wanting to combine psychology and performance mm-hmm. was something a realization and a moment that you came to uh, and then putting that into, how can I put myself out there? Um, A lot of people listening will know you from being the relationship expert on maths in Australia and also in the UK. Talk to me a little bit about that shift and that transition to go from your psychology work into reality TV. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, I I guess the the pragmatic way that I did it is kind of interesting um because I I feel like I was finally practicing what I preach so you know I've talked for years about confidence you know even when I was you know doing loads of work in, in corporate talking about all different aspects of leadership it would often for me come back to confidence because I would recognize that as a gap for people um and the first season of Married at First Sight went on air in Australia and I wasn't in it it was it was just on it was a different a different cast and. A lot of my friends and family, particularly my sister and my hubby, said to me, you should be doing this. You should be on this show. You know, this is your bag. This is because by that stage, I had retrained as a coach and specifically as a dating coach as well. And so I had a real passion, you know, for for working with single people and helping them to Get over these fears and, and step into new relationships. Um, and at this stage I was starting to do a little bit of TV spots, morning shows and, and evening shows, and you know, just sort of coming in with that expert commentary around sort of mental health and well-being and confidence and relationships. So I had a little bit of a portfolio and you know, a little bit, <laughs> a few little snippets um, that I managed to cobble together as a makeshift kind of show reel. And I thought okay this this is actually something I need not need want want to go for this is I I believe that this is something that is so well aligned with all of my interests and my skill sets and you know I I know I had a deep knowing that this was something that I could do and could do really well and enjoy more importantly so I Started working my network and and talking to the the few little people that not little people <laughs> they weren't little they were normal sized people but the people that I knew in TV and started gathering some intel about you know who are who who are the players here who do I need to talk to about this show because I, I'd like to put myself forward and found out who was casting it and sent through this. Um, little uh, example of my work and basically said to them I'd really love to meet you I'd love to talk to you about how I would do things differently are you open to a different conversation and sure enough we went and met for a a wine it was hilarious it was such a clandestine meeting i remember wearing my trench coat like i was literally <laughs> literally like i was undercover we met for a wine in a little bar in sydney it was all very top secret <laughs> and basically just talked to this this producer about my ideas for the show and how, you know, th- what I saw, you know, this show could achieve and how I would, would do it differently. And at that stage they said to me, look, we have three experts on the panel but we're open to one more so we would be happy to have four so let's explore this. So we did and, you know, went through this whole process and, you know, loads of auditions and screen tests with the other people in the show and, you know, eventually moved into season one and, and I've now done 11 seasons. No, I think, yeah, nine in Australia and two in the UK. <laughs> amazing,
0: amazing. Mm. If I can dissect that a little bit, mm. what I'd love to know, and again, if we come back to confidence, the and I'll use this word only because I think sometimes it can be the story that people think in their head, but the audacity to say to a producer, I think you could do it differently. Yeah is beautiful and amazing and no doubt put you on the radar. The confidence to do that is probably something that you're talking to people about in yes. terms of the confidence that they can tap into. How? What helped you with that?
1: Something I, I remember doing at the time, because, of course, I had doubts. You know, yes, it does take audacity and, you know, as as we say in Melbourne, more front than mire. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. My parents used to say that. Uh, it takes a lot of front to do that. Um, I did have doubts. And yep. so something that I, I remember doing at the time was some scenario planning. So, so kind of playing out all the different scenarios that could happen. And I think this is a really good one for people to do because it, it enables you to, in by visualising, to step into that worst case scenario um and to feel the feelings so let's say it's a bit of humiliation a bit of rejection a bit of oh oh my god I'm dying kind of moment and then to actually visualize yourself working through that moving past it and guess what nobody dies so I I remember doing that because I can I can actually remember visualizing myself getting to this meeting sharing my ideas and having this person say well, who do you think you are? You're just a nobody. You've never done an ETV. What makes you think you could do it better than anyone else? Um, And, of course, all that imposter syndrome stuff was coming up, Mm. absolutely was coming up at that time because, you know, I was putting myself in a situation where I was definitely starting to take on the identity of a television person because that's something that I really believe is <clears throat> important for people to do when you're working towards a goal, to embody the goal, to act as if you're already there. And I don't mean this in an arrogant way at all. You know, I, I don't believe, you know, that that's going to win any, any, any um, races at all. Um, I, I think it's about still having absolute self-awareness about the way that you're communicating, but to believe that you could do it and you're mm. in the process of making it happen So for me, that was it. It was the combination of scenario planning, thinking through the worst case scenario and going, okay, the worst case scenario here is somebody says no to me. Okay, I can deal with that. And guess what? I can turn that into an opportunity to ask for feedback and to learn about what my gaps are and actually try a different tack because I'm in no rush. It's not like this goal had a time limit on it. So that really helped me. I think what you've done
0: is actually put a voice to this. To the stories in our head anyway So rather than it kind of stopping Our our behaviour because it's Kind of still sitting in our head uh, Those fears is actually let's articulate It, what if they did say that, what would I do How might I respond Would that sting in the moment, yes But then what the next step would be Is, is really powerful You talked before about mastering Fear, fear is always going to be there Whenever we turn up with confidence One of the f- biggest fears That stops or suppresses confidence is what will other people think uh, or this fear of being put um, scrutinized and even your example you go 11 11 seasons of married at first sight really putting yourself out there um, and the the confidence as you say to align the kind of work that you want to do that you love to do the flip side of that it also comes with public scrutiny and mm. How, how have you dealt with or continue to deal with the public scrutiny, uh, which can be that surfacing of the fear of what will people think? Unfortunately, with social media and media in general, sometimes we see those things in headlines yeah. or in you know, on, on websites. Yep. You How do. have you dealt with, with uh, public scrutiny? Mm.
1: Well, it's good that you're asking me now because I'm actually in a really good place with my relationship with um, other people's opinions of me now. But um, if mm. you'd asked me four years ago, I was in the thick of it. So yeah, it was, it was 2018. Um, I experienced a massive backlash Um, in the media and social media based on something that I said on screen that was not presented in context. And I was labelled very... The underlying belief was that I was biased. That's essentially what people were saying. But the labelling around that was, you know, toxic feminist and all that sort of thing. I had the men's movement out against me. I was getting death threats, rape threats. There was a petition to have me sacked, and I think about 70,000 people signed that. You know, there were daily, several articles a day in the tabloids. One of them said I was Australia's most hated woman, (laughs) I mean, it was so extreme. It was incredible. And it did spill over into real life too. It wasn't just online. Um, I had an awful experience at an airport where I, I was by myself and standing in line and I just wanted the ground to swallow me up. I remember I had a hoodie on and I put my hood on and I was literally and figuratively hiding. It was so awful. I felt so conspicuous. I was, yeah. my paranoia went through the roof, I'd sort of thought everyone mm. was staring at me and talking about me and I was really hyper vigilant. I was jumping, someone moved towards me and I actually squealed. It was awful. I was so anxious. It was, it was a really, really tough time. But big lessons, huge lessons from that for me because, you know, I guess after that I had to make a decision. Do I want to continue with this? Am I going to continue to put myself in a situation where I n- I'm knowingly exposing myself to this kind of risk. You know, um, I'm not naive. I, I I know that that's a huge part of the industry that I, I now work in. And so I made a conscious choice to continue and put some things in place to make sure that, you know, it wasn't going to affect me in such a negative way in future. So one of the things is, you know, surrounding myself with the right people support group, um, and now I have the most, you know, from a business perspective, I have a team in the UK and a team in Australia working with me um, who support my, um, the um, the media side of myself and my business, but also my business side. So that helps for feeling supported. You know, obviously I have an amazing family and friendship group around me that I can really easily debrief on this stuff with. I have incredible mentors as well. When this all blew up, my beautiful mentor, Sandy Ray, who's a senior psychologist and does a lot of media work as well, was my absolute crutch. She was there and really helpful for helping me put this stuff in perspective and deal with it. But now I have a very different relationship with social media. It is so easy now for me to read something and instantly block, delete, move on. You know, I don't internalise it. It, it, it. it kind of, it's very much like I've got a shield and it, it doesn't get through to me um, on an emotional level at all. I have managed to create a really strong boundary, I think, between myself and the real me and, you know, the the professional me, the bits that they see of me through the TV, which is not the whole me. You know, it's, it's a very highly curated, edited version of things that I say, you know, for example, on the on a commitment ceremony, that, that can last, you know, eight or 10 hours and you might see 25, 30 minutes of it.
0: Mm. <laughs> yep. The, the curation of it um, mm-hmm. means that it can be different to, to how it actually kind of comes across, you um, Look, yeah, really appreciate you sharing that because it's the, where we talk about kind of confidence and fear, it's often that kind of unsaid fear. And your story is the amplification of yeah. all of those fears um, and to hear the, you know, the importance of having people around you having those um. Professionals around you to really kind of support that uh, and that you can make that decision and come out the other side mm-hmm. is, um, is really powerful as well. Mm. In terms of stories around confidence, I know a lot of your work is predominantly building up women's confidence, um, and you talk a little bit about the, the gender difference. Mm in confidence between men and women what are and you mentioned before some of the stories that women are told that if you're too confident you're bossy or you're arrogant mm. uh you need to just kind of be the australian way is be knocked down a peg yep. or two. um and what are some of the stories that i guess women might hear or internalize around confidence and if we think about that continuum um yeah, and I love that sense of you're somewhere between a five and an eight, but sometimes we, we're worried that if we go into a five, I'm actually a nine, um, yes. that I'll become, <laughs> yes. I'll become arrogant and I don't want to be and so I won't and I need to put other people first and mm-hmm. not me. Um, what are some of those stories that you've heard and, and coached and, mm-hmm. and guided women through in order for them to really fall into that sweet spot of confidence? Yeah.
1: Well I think to to look at that those stories that we tell ourselves we have to go back to our childhood socialization and the different the gender differences in the way that you know particularly if we look at sort of parenting in the 60s 70s and even 80s and the difference in the way that parents would would reinforce boys and girls you know they'd reinforce boys for being competitive and driven and leader like and taking risks and we'd reward the girls for being kind and nurturing and sharing and all of those, you know, traditionally softer skills. I'm so pleased to see that this is starting to shift now in in parenting and, and gender, and I really celebrate that. But I think, you know, we've taken we've taken all of those messages with us into adulthood, and you know, I so often hear, you know, women it comes out in our language. And I wonder if some of your your listeners might be familiar with this. You know, we, particularly as women, and particularly in Australia too, we have this this tendency to apologise for our existence. You know, we'll start it. We'll start a sentence with, "Oh, sorry, Ellie. I was just wondering." Or, we'll be in a meeting and we'll just go, "Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm just wondering if maybe. I mean, I doubt if this is important, but perhaps we could consider this. But maybe, you know, all of these qualifiers and apologies and This is so, so common. Mm. I hear this in, you know, grown, accomplished women all the time. You know, it is just we are taught that we need to be apologetic for our existence and not take up too much space. So a lot of the work that I do starts here. And, you know, I, I talk to my clients and it's, it's in the book as well about the idea of the little girl hangover. So that's not to do with underage drinking. It's about, <laughs> it's about those habits that, that probably served us well when we were kids. But when we bring them into our adulthood, they're just plain dysfunctional and kind of funny. So, and, you know, I think it helps to laugh at ourselves on this as well. So, you know, some of those things are, you know, like the bratty response, you know, when, when, you're, when you're five and you don't get the lolly that you wanted, you might have a tantrum, you might lie on the floor and hold your breath, you know, you might scream and shout. But if you're in, you know, you're 35 and you're in the workplace and your boss doesn't agree with a project suggestion that you make, if you lie on the floor and hold your breath it's going to have a very different response from people career limiting move <laughs> right exactly you start shouting slamming doors you know or what you might see more realistically in the workplace is passive aggression so you know you might be you might be giving it a fine <laughs> fine okay mm. fine when you're not fine or You might freeze someone out and stop talking to them um, when you really have something to say, you know. So there's a lot of these childish um, behaviours that that as women we bring into our adulthood that that no longer serve us. Um, Baby talk is another one. know i hear this in again accomplished professional women who will when they want to present an idea that has some risk associated with it or some vulnerability some exposure they might go got a little idea let me tell you about my idea (laughs) i know it's cringe isn't it
0: (laughs) oh i know i'm giggling because i've heard it and i've probably said it (laughs)
1: exactly we all do it i mean this is not Mm.
0: about blaming at all no it's just about hearing it it's recognizing it
1: we do it um and I, i see this a lot in relationships too where a woman will go into that sort of infantile mode as a way of um, getting what she wants from a man, you know, and it can actually lead to some really problematic behaviours um, because it's essentially diminishing your power, you know, whether that's in the workplace or in a relationship, you know, it's sort of saying, okay, in order to not threaten you, I'm going to diminish my power through my voice, little make my little voice, or through the way that I'm putting myself forward, you know, and it's it's really, it's self-sabotage, you know, it is. It, it is a form of getting in your own way. So I love the idea of women starting to just get really aware of all of these things so that it's not just happening automatically and unconsciously, but, you know, to be able to say to yourself before you go into an important meeting, okay, I know that I'm going to be a little bit heightened in this meeting. I'm going to get a bit stressed. And one of the things I do when I get stressed is, I get a dry throat. So I'm going to make sure I've got my water with me. That's my first thing. I also know that I have a tendency to get a sweaty palm. So I'm going to have this hanky in my pocket or tissue so I can soak up some of the sweat in my pocket before I shake that person's hand. So a couple of practical things there that that might help me. Okay, I know when I go to put forward my idea in this meeting that I'm going to feel nervous about it. My voice will naturally go up. (laughs) So I'm going to be aware of that. I'm going to take some deep conscious breaths before I speak, before anyone's aware that I'm ready to speak. When I'm ready, I'm going to think about my voice. I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to use pause. And I'm going to be aware of the tone of my voice too. So you can see how that changes. Mm. Yeah.
0: allow the space to to be present Mm. to recognize that is so powerful when you mentioned before the the uh apologizing the Mm. sorry it's rampant (laughs) a lot of the work that I do in corporate and I know you've heard this as well is is for female leaders to recognize how often we apologize um and I know I've done some work where even in our team um, where we were trying to stop some of that kind of behaviour and just recognise that with humour with each yeah. other. And so the standard saying used to became, become, well, what have you done wrong? Because you only <laughs> yeah. apologise if you've done something wrong and if you haven't, then stop it. So. <laughs> do you know
1: I, I, I do that too? Oh. And do you know what I think makes it even funnier, <laughs> gets them laughing? When they go, sorry, I go, oh, did you fart? <laughs> <laughs>
0: for? no one should apologize no. for farting exactly, cause...
1: <laughs> exactly. we all it's love It's just always
0: fart. funny yeah
1: it's always funny and it's a good way to break the ice and you know if someone gets someone laughing at themselves but i loved i really yeah. loved the i'm not sure if you saw the um piece of research that hewlett packard did a couple of years ago around the Oh, so interesting. So they got a group of men and a group of women and got them to look at a position description and make a decision about whether or not they would put themselves forward. So mm. what they found was the men went through that criteria and when they met 60% of the criteria, they said to themselves, yeah, great, put myself forward. What percentage do you think women had to meet before they applied?
0: Oh, look... <laughs> It's going to be way less than 60%, isn't it? Well, no, the other way
1: around. They had to meet 100%. Oh, meet. Yeah. Yeah, Women said to themselves, unless I meet all of the criteria, Mm. I'm not going to put myself forward. So that was so powerful for me. The men would look at that 40% gap and go, yeah, I can make that leap. I'm going to jump. I'm going to step into that 40% of doubt Mm. and I'm going to make it work for me. Whereas women wouldn't even jump if there was 1% gap. So I think that was actually one of the catalysts for me to write the book. When I read that piece of research, it just made all the thoughts and ideas that I had about the gender gap in confidence so concrete, and I I, I, had, mm. I had to write it. That it, it was a, why it this was, is important. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah, about yeah. influencing that gap, that the confidence gap, and what we can do about it. Mm. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Come back to if it's sixty percent, give it a crack. Yeah, yes. We can yeah. <laughs> figure out the forty percent. Right. Yes, Yep, put it in there. You talk a lot about, and you have um, even through this conversation, emotional bravery. So really, kind of stepping out of our comfort zone, um, and I love that kind of sense of expanding outside of our comfort zone. Mm. If, um, you know, it, it, the confidence is a dance. So what if people do expand out, kind of put their neck out a little bit and it didn't quite work? Um, even your example of speaking up at a meeting, mindful of my voice, mindful of my tone, and I felt like I delivered and but it didn't get heard or it did get heard but nothing's happened. Yeah. How do we then come back into
1: that bravery that's
0: required to go again?
1: I think a really um, strong tool to have in any of these courageous moments is a buddy or a, a mate. So someone, if we use the workplace example, maybe it's your work wife, you know, maybe it's your, your close friend at work, maybe it's a, um, a leader, maybe it's someone who's senior to you, maybe it's a peer. Being able to have someone that you trust who can sort of be like a a bit of a champion for you and, you know, even unofficially, you know, and to be able to say to them before the meeting, okay, I'm going to be putting this idea forward. I'm feeling pretty wobbly about it. Can you just be there with me? But also afterwards, can I debrief it with you? Will you give me some really, you know, honest and kind (laughs) feedback um, once I've done this? Because I think the, the thing that, that makes a lot of people spiral into the overthinking mode is being alone and you know not having that voice of reason or voice of support you know to to help debrief that so i think that is so important or maybe it's your partner when you get home you know it could be anyone that you know you choose but i think making sure that it's not an iso- you don't feel isolated in that event is so incredibly important and then i'm a huge i'm a huge fan of journaling you know, so taking the opportunity after that event to, you know, spend a bit of time sitting down and writing about what that experience was like for you, where you think, you know, at what point did you decide to take the leap into that that courageous moment? Could you have chosen a different moment? You know, really get quite analytical, You know, from that bird's eye view, try to step out of the emotion and just really pick it apart and be quite, Smart and strategic in the way that you're thinking about how did I do it that time? Okay, maybe I'll shift the dial on one thing or another. Maybe it's about um, the people that I address in the room or the amount of time I take. You know, there's so many variables there you could play with to try it differently next time. And just keep coming back to that notion that failure is just feedback.
0: The importance of writing it down and then it kind of removes it from almost you and you can become quite analytical about it. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, being the relationship expert, is the the same with dating because we're talking about matters of the heart? It's quite vulnerable to put yourself out there, whether it's to ask for a date or to be um, kind of emotionally exposed. So can we talk about workplaces but then is, is it the same approach if it comes to relationships?
1: Ali, I've been accused of being very unromantic in my dating advice and this is why. I'm going to say yes. I think it is the same. I really hmm. do. Um, the parallels between the work that I do with single people looking for love and couples and people in the workplace are incredible. I actually talk about a strategic approach to dating <laughs> which might sound terribly clinical and not romantic. (laughs) But in my experience, if you get all of the, the strategy and the vision and the tactics and all that stuff that we do in our workplace, if you get all of that right in your dating life, then you're more likely to meet with someone compatible. And when you meet with someone compatible, the romance and the spark is more likely to flow. So yes, it's not romantic, but I do believe in a, in a very strategic approach to dating because, look, let's face it, you wouldn't arrive at a job, a job interview having not looked at the job description or not done research on the company or, you know, wearing moccasins, yes. you know. So why not <laughs> apply that to, you know, the most important relationship of your life?
0: Yeah, and it is that, uh, you know, even a job interview, you're, you're assessing them as much yes. as they're assessing you, the same in kind of relationships. Yes. Um, and that can be Give rom- yourself
1: some power.
0: romantic relationships, it can be friendships, it can be, yeah, all of those yeah. different areas as well mm. there are times though where we can kind of let ourselves off the hook a little bit mm. um where we don't necessarily hold ourselves accountable where we might turn up to the, <laughs> the job interview in moccasins <laughs> i don't know yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and one of the things i think you you deliver exceptionally well um and And have a reputation from is those those key questions uh, and holding people accountable to their actions. How do we hold ourselves accountable? When it can be easy enough to go, "Yeah, that's fine, but not me, or I'll just sit this one out or I'll kind of, yeah, sure, i want it. I want a new job, but mm. yeah you know, we'll just see if one arrives. Mm. How do we hold ourselves and be really honest with ourselves yeah. about our own actions?
1: Yeah, I think this is this is one of those questions that everybody needs to ask. You know, because I, I think one of the quirks of being human is we do let ourselves off and we do undermine ourselves. We do get an, get in our own way. Um, I mean, this is never more obvious than in the field of addiction. You know, for example, this is where, mm. where we see this very, very strongly. But we can extrapolate from that into other areas of life that, that are not so extreme. Um, I think the key to all of this is self-awareness. You know, I think in, in my work, the, the times I do need to get really direct and ask those very challenging questions is with people who are not showing self-awareness, who are not reflecting, who are not thinking about the impact of what they're saying and doing on other people or on their own outcomes who are just on autopilot. You know, I have no time for people who are on autopilot. You know, I just think that Mm. you're, you're not, you're skimming the surface of life. You know, it's um, in order to have a big, full, interesting, messy life, you have to take some risks and you have to think about, okay, I've taken that risk. It didn't go well. What could I do differently? You've got to put your ego aside, you know. You've got to be able to swallow a bit of that pride and go, okay, I didn't actually do that as well as I could have. What could I do differently next time? And then it becomes a really positive, constructive thing. Otherwise, you just you just kind of. wallow. You become stagnant, mm. yeah. You, you can't move mm. on from that and it's, it's very, it's kind of pathetic. And we don't want to be that.
0: No. <laughs> Not when there's this offer, as you say, of living the big full life. Um, and, yeah, what does that take as we step into that? If we come back to when you talk about the um, confidence and you actually guide people through four key things, we've touched on a few of those, fear mastery, so recognising fear, putting a name to it and and then kind of facing that. Um, courage, but a, a smart level of courage, having a deep confidence. And then the final one is around fluid competence. Talk to me, what do you mean and how do you define fluid competence?
1: I, I'd start by defining what, what fluid competence is not. It's not high performance. I don't, I don't like the term high performance because I think it's, it's if taken literally it's a recipe for burnout. You know, I think there are times where high performance is required, you know, for a, for a period, you know, leading up to a, a the peak of a project for example. But I think we can learn a lot from sports people here where, you know, they don't if they're leading up to let's say the Olympics, they don't they don't train at 100% every day. You know, they'll have certain periods where they're at 40%, 30%, 80%, 20%, and they ensure that they are managing their performance levels and their training levels in a way that's sustainable and it's not going to lead to burnout. So I think we can learn a lot from that, you know, in terms of our own lives and our own careers and work towards optimal performance rather than high performance. And for me, optimal optimal performance is really dynamic, it's a process of constantly self-monitoring, checking, how am I going? Am I putting in the amount of energy that this task requires whilst also ensuring that I can attend to my self-care or the relationships with my family, with my team? You know, so it's, it's, I see that optimal performance as a way of really, um, of avoiding burnout because, You can't go into burnout if you're constantly self-monitoring and checking yourself and being aware of your energy levels and and changing them if you're using too much or too little.
0: That... um yeah, checking in on where you're at and then what's kind of guiding and, and shifting from here. Um, knowing that confidence comes from competence. So yeah. the cap- capability of doing things, being able to see and go, oh, yeah, actually that worked or that I was able to get that project done or have mm-hmm. that conversation or go out for a run longer than what I thought I would, yes. that builds confidence and Absolutely. really is key. Yeah, want to talk to you about something that I think we're not very good at Probably women are less good at And that is celebrating along the way ah, So often we will undermine yes. our efforts And go, yeah, yeah, sure, I did that But it wasn't as good or I could have done it better And we beat ourselves up Because we know the things that we didn't quite achieve But no one else does
1: mm-hmm.
0: How do you celebrate the little wins And what encouragements would you have for people to to recognise that?
1: Oh, I think this is a, this is a great topic, Ellie. And I, I agree. And I'm not always good at it either. You know, I, I can be guilty of falling into that. No, I don't get to celebrate until I've achieved a hundred percent. But of course, mm, you know, so yep, often our, yep. our goals are, are iterative, aren't they? And there are bits that happen along the way that, you know, if we chunk it down, it's so, it's so, um, motivating to reward ourselves along the way, um, you know that's this is something that I know I need to get better at as well and definitely with with my hubby this is something that we work towards together um, because he knows that I have that tendency to not want to celebrate until I've achieved you know the ultimate thing and some of the things projects I work on can be years long so you know we are very good at going right this has been a milestone this week let's actually open a bottle of champagne mm. on friday because Yes, the whole thing's not completed, but look what we achieved. Um, I think that's really, really um, helpful. Right. Yeah, but I, I, <laughs> I definitely can't speak from this one as an expert because it's something that I'm very much a work in progress in. When I had, um, I was in a business partnership years ago with another psychologist and we put a practice in in our, um, in our business that every Friday we'd celebrate, we'd call it Fig Jam, do you know what that stands for? I've might, heard it but you. It might involve some swearing.
0: Yeah, go, go, <laughs> swear away.
1: Fuck I'm good, just ask me. <laughs> and so we'd have a fig jam, you it. know, it'd be in our business diary for a Friday afternoon and we'd have a fig jam at, at the end of every week. And I think I need to reinstitute that into my life because I think it was a really good thing for us to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, particularly when we're talking mm. about confidence because it's, Sometimes the things that we want to celebrate aren't necessarily the things you might necess- you put on Instagram it's yeah. the it's the small yeah. thing that I got up at 5:30 and I went down and watched the sunrise mm-hmm. um and the reason why that's important is cuz I've been saying for 2 months I wanted to do it and I finally did it on yes. Tuesday um but it's not necessarily something we go other people would might see as a major thing. Mm. But I think it is just so important. Um and that tie back into confidence is is really key. What um, what are you excited about in terms of the conversation of confidence happening more and more so? Like what are you whether it's from the book or whether it's more people that you've been talking to around confidence, what excites you around the way women in particular can can change their relationship with confidence.
1: I I love that I'm starting to hear women talk about doing courageous things with pride. So I have a a, a small group of women I'm working with at the moment and it's just, it's such a joy because we we've got this little group We've completed a, um, a program, they've completed my program and we now just have this little informal group and just jump into this group, it's a WhatsApp group, and share little examples of where they've actually put these courageous actions into play and, you know, little selfies of themselves, you know, for example, doing a power pose before going into a meeting. One of my clients doing that and she's loving it, absolutely loving it and just the joy that, that she's experienced because she's starting to do things that she never would have dreamed of in the past. Um, She actually applied for a job that was three levels above her own and she got it. And this was just unheard of, you know? And so for me, seeing that women, the, the idea for me that a woman can manage fear, step into courage and do something that feels extraordinary to her and to get the subsequent confidence from doing that, like you were saying before, you know, when you know you've you've achieved something, it boosts that self-efficacy and your confidence goes up. And to feel proud of that, that's the thing I'm excited about. Not to be ashamed of it, not to say, mm. oh, sorry, 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 but to go, yes, look what I did. I am woman, hear me roar.
0: That sense of pride is often what we're missing, that That's powerful and there's something like I've got goosebumps just as you're saying that because there's something that then I think he's a role model. He pulls others around you, whether it's the next generation, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's other people, there's something that goes, oh, maybe that project I've got on the back burner or that little thing or that conversation that's been niggling me that I know I should have, I could go and do that. And just see. That's really powerful. Yeah. Mel, I could keep having this conversation. There's so much more. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I love that you've put out this, uh, this book called The C Word and uh, we're going to put all the links in for people to be able to jump on and, and share. Um, I feel more confident an hour in. Yes. So this is awesome. <laughs> my work is done.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> if I ask you my final question, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. What does it mean to you when you hear that term? What does it mean to live a standout life?
1: For me, a standout life is about doing things that are extraordinary. A standout life is not just living on autopilot. It is about stepping into the fear, into the the courage space and actually expanding your world and testing your limits and just seeing how far you can possibly go that stand
0: out to me i'd sign up for the extraordinary sounds <laughs> great thank you mel you've been extraordinary i've loved this conversation oh,
1: thanks ellie i've loved it too
0: if you've enjoyed today's episode then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called stand out a real world guide to get clear find purpose and become the boss of busy you can grab a copy by heading to my website www.allisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes, and give this podcast a quick rating, so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ally Hill, and this is Standout Life.